Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Like the bees need the flowers, like the plants need the showers, so too do nuclear reactors need uranium. But unfortunately, most of that uranium comes from Russia. On today's Parts Per Billion, we talk about how the nuclear power industry is going to meet its needs now that Russian uranium is off the table. Hello, and welcome back once again to Parts Per Billion, the environmental podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. Is nuclear power good for the environment? That's a very complicated question that we won't even come close to definitively answering today. But it is interesting to think about. On the one hand, it's a source of energy with few to no carbon emissions. And given how desperately we need that in order to have a chance against climate change, that's a pretty big plus. But on the other hand, the fuel that goes into nuclear power plants and the fuel waste that comes out is dangerously radioactive. And as we all know, the environmental consequences of an accident at one of these plants are incalculably high. So given these pluses and minuses, if you're an environmental activist and you read Daniel Moore's recent story, it's not clear whether you should hang your head or jump for joy. Moore is an environmental reporter with Bloomberg Law, and he reported that the Biden administration is scrambling to find a new source of uranium for the country's nuclear power plants because before last month, a huge percentage of that uranium came from, you guessed it, Russia. Since the country invaded its neighbor Ukraine, sourcing anything from Russia, whether it's crude oil, uranium, anything, is fraught, to put it mildly. In a bit, we'll get into exactly what the Biden administration is trying to do about this. But first, I asked Daniel to quantify exactly how reliant the U.S. nuclear power energy is on Russian uranium. Yeah, so Russia and its allies account for nearly half of all U.S. imports of uranium. So the U.S. is quite dependent on Russia and its allies. The other half comes from more U.S.-friendly allies like Canada and Australia and some other countries. But the U.S. doesn't produce virtually any uranium today. So it is it is a country that is entirely dependent. The nuclear industry is entirely dependent on imports of uranium. And almost half of those come from Russia or countries allied with Russia. And that's one of the reasons why I thought your story was so interesting is that we've been hearing about, you know, that the Biden administration cut off imports of Russian oil, but that it wouldn't make much of a difference because, you know, that only accounts for you know, oil from Russia only accounts for like 3% of our Uh, oil intake. We need 50% of our uranium comes from Russia. You can't just have a 50% drop in your supply and have things go on as normal, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another layer to the challenge, which is the future of nuclear. 
which is advanced reactors, these smaller reactors the nuclear industry is trying to scale up. Um, the energy department supporting 10 different pilot projects right now to try to demonstrate that technology. And right now, all, all of that fuel, which is a different type of fuel from the current supply, comes from Russia as well. And that's 100% of that fuel. So it, the the nuclear industry is facing this big supply crunch right now with its fuel supplies. And something will have to be done. So what's the Biden administration doing about this? I mean, I don't think there's an easy or quick fix, but what are what is the Energy Department and the broader administration trying to do? Right. So one approach is to create something like a strategic uranium reserve. Um, I think a lot of people have heard news about the strategic petroleum reserve, which has been releasing oil to try to handle um, high gas prices and lower those. Um, this would be where the government, you know, buys supplies of uranium, keeps them on hand. So if the nuclear industry needs supplies in a crunch, they can access them. There's another program um, where the energy department would try to scale up production of this more energy-dense fuel that advanced reactors need. And it's another type of program where the energy department would buy these supplies, keep them on hand, try to provide an incentive for fuel companies to produce this fuel, which, again, isn't produced at all in the United States right now. So let's talk about that 50% number again. Um, you know, is this has that number been going up or down? And what I mean by that is, has the nuclear industry been trying to move away from Russia for a long time, and now this could accelerate that? Or is this a situation where we've become been becoming more reliant, and this is just going to be falling off a cliff? Yeah, it's more the second one. I mean, these programs at the Energy Department to try to increase uranium supply um, were created just a few years ago by Congress, and they're just getting them up and going. Um, so it's been recognized as a problem, uh, and these imports coming from Russia is, you know, has been recognized as a national security concern. But I'd say the invasion of Ukraine last month really put more pressure on the department to act more quickly. And what they're trying to do now is accelerate these efforts um, around these fuel supply programs. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's talk about some of the environmental aspects here. Um, you mentioned that we don't get any uranium domestically. What if we did? What if we started mining uranium here in the U.S.? First off, is that even possible? And secondly, what would be the environmental concerns if that were to happen? Yeah. So at one point, we did mine uranium here. I mean, uranium mining has this legacy in the American Southwest Um uh, on tribal lands and around tribal lands and around national parks um, that, you know, these big open pit mines, you can see them uh, from, <laughs> from very high up in the air. Um, they don't look very great. Uh, you know, in the 40s, 50s and 60s during nuclear weapons production and during the civilian nuclear program boom, you know, we saw um, a lot of contamination, um, a lot of uh, radioactive poisoning, just a lot of pollution concerns. And so that contributed to the drop off in uranium mining in recent decades and kind of this loss of support um, for that type of industry here. And so, you know, certainly environmental justice advocates, uh, tribal nations are expressing concerns about something like a strategic uranium reserve because they say this is going in completely the wrong direction, given the environmental liability that the government has. Would there be anywhere you could put it that would be safe or remotely safe? I mean, this is we're talking about a radioactive ore. Yeah. I mean, the nuclear industry would say yes. Um, there are places, there are um, uranium mills, there are different facilities out west that are far from populated areas. I mean, I most people have heard of Yucca Mountain in Nevada as being a geologic repository for waste. Um, there are places where people would, um, you know, be at a distance from this material. But again, just the whole nuclear fuel supply chain is something that is a concern for people because it's the zero emissions power, but it has this environmental footprint, um, particularly uh, near tribal lands and environmental justice communities. I'm glad you brought up the zero emissions angle because now I want to get into how this plays into climate change and specifically fossil fuels. Uh, nuclear energy is very expensive. It was already having a hard time competing against natural gas and other fossil fuels on price. I have to imagine that a massive supply chain disruption of uranium isn't going to help that. If nuclear becomes even more expensive, what takes its place? Is it fossil fuels? Yeah, that's certainly what the nuclear industry would argue. It's kind of hard to say what would happen, but as of now, gas has been the predominant source of electricity growth in this country. Um, gas has, you know, the abundance of natural gas domestically has lowered the prices and caused a lot of utilities to switch to natural gas instead of coal. And so as coal has dropped, natural gas has gone up. And you're right, that's what's put pressure in the market on nuclear energy and caused a lot of nuclear plants to 
you know, end up shutting down and decommission. So yeah, I mean, a fuel supply crunch, a fuel prices would go up because you're developing this domestically or you're getting more, uh, developing a mine in Canada or Australia or some of these other countries that are more friendly to the U.S., um, though, you know, nuclear op- operates on a pretty tight margin right now. So those increased fuel costs would be pretty damaging. Yeah. And finally, I want to get into the broader kind of implications here. And I love talking about nuclear because I think that it highlights this really fascinating divide within the environmental movement itself. Um, you know, for a long, long time, anti-nuclear protests were sort of a huge part of the environmental movement. But now the calculus has changed that we have climate change, which is, you know, maybe overrides everything else, according to some people. And as you mentioned, nuclear power is zero emissions. If nuclear power and uranium becomes hard to find and nuclear power, you know, wanes even further, is that a good thing for the environmental movement or a bad thing? I I. I genuinely don't know. It's it's kind of a split right now. Um, it's the debate is definitely real between uh, different environmental groups. I would say uh, in Congress, you're seeing largely bipartisan support for nuclear. We should also point out there's also uh, bipartisan uh, location of nuclear power plants. There's a lot of nuclear power right. plants in a lot of districts. Uh, across the country. We should also point out that nobody wants the waste. Um, That's also the very partisan true. gridlock has led to this waste issue where there's, you know, waste there is no central repository. But yeah, there's there's support for nuclear for its climate attributes, for the fact that it's it can get it, uh, the power sector to zero emissions by 2035, which is the Biden administration's goal. Um, but Nobody seems to want to address in Congress this 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 waste issue and the environmental footprint of the mining and the demand that this would create for new mining. There are some states that have rolled back uh, bans on new nuclear, like West Virginia. Uh, so it, there seems to be generally this thaw on um, anti-nuclear activity. But there's still, again, with environmental justice groups, tribal groups, um, particularly in the American West, there's this staunch opposition to nuclear still, and it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens if you know you have all these taxpayer subsidies going to uranium mining or subsidies to prop up nuclear plants, kind of how that plays out politically. So fascinating. Uh, well, that was Daniel Moore speaking with us. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much. Always happy to talk about nuclear waste. Yeah, thanks. And that's it for today's episode of Parts Per Billion. If you want more environmental news, check us out on Twitter. We use the handle at environment, just that, at environment. I'm at David B. Schultz. That's B as in get your brackets in. They're due on Thursday at noon Eastern. Don't forget, brackets at noon. Today's episode of Parts Per Billion was produced by myself, David Schultz. Parts Per Billion was created by Jessica Coombs and Rachel Daigle and is edited by Zach Sherwood and Chuck McCutcheon. Our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, everyone. You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. 
You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.